Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information about our ministries, head to calvarystgeorges.org. A long time ago, in my undergraduate years, I studied classical languages and literature. Now, that sentence is code for, academic code for, I was really nerdy and I spent way too much time in my Latin and Greek dictionaries. But all that time with dead languages did afford me a study abroad abroad semester in Italy with a spring break in Greece. So I got to pretend that I was really cool for a few months while I visited lots and lots of really old buildings and ruins. And the ones that I loved the most were the temples. One that was especially memorable for me lay in ruins in the Valley of the Temples in Agrigento, Sicily. The Temple of Olympian Zeus was the largest Doric temple ever constructed. And the thing is, it was also never finished. So in the centuries since its creation, it had crumpled and lay scattered across the meadow. The stones were massive. They were far larger than I was, and I couldn't comprehend how the ancient Greeks had managed to maneuver them into place when they were actually standing on top of each other. But there also was this sense of melancholy to the scene, of grandeur once striven for and never quite achieved. Those stones were meant for much more than dotting a pretty landscape amidst the wildflowers. But that was where they ended up. Temples were a mainstay of culture in the ancient world. And the Christians in the house churches of Asia Minor, the ones who received the letter from Peter that we heard read today, they lived in a society that revolved around temple worship. If they were Gentile by origin, before their conversion to Christianity, they would have brought animals for sacrifice and then gone into the temple markets to purchase their meat for dinner. And if they were Jewish by origin, then they would have grown up hearing stories about the temple in Jerusalem, which was the center of their worship, even if they'd never made it there to visit. And so when Peter painted his peculiar picture of living stones built into a spiritual house with Christ as its cornerstone, these large temples with beautifully painted arches and figurines would have come to the minds of the people who were listening to him. But Peter builds this familiar image with a very unfamiliar phrase. What are living stones anyway? It feels like Peter is mixing his metaphors up a bit here because stones are hard, solid matter, unchanging except under conditions of extreme weather or other types of pressure. We live our lives depending on the idea that stones don't change. And when they do, it can be catastrophic. It makes temples fall down or at the very least, it makes us spend a lot of money on maintaining churches. But on the other hand, the adjective living 
brings to mind these supple, flexible beings that depend on nutrients and sustenance to grow and change. Plants, animals, children. So when you put these two together, it seems like the living part might make the stone part far less reliable and desirable. Who wants a building made out of stones that are alive? But this phrase, these two parts put together, emphasize the uniqueness of what Peter is describing. The early church met in people's homes, which were a far cry from the temples of their old religions. Christianity was a faith that worshipped in spirit and in truth, rather than in a specific locale at a specific altar. And yet, Peter taps into these archetypal images of stone, of houses of worship, to show these Christian communities who and what they were. Living stones built into Christ as the cornerstone, built up into a spiritual house, a house made up of God's own people who have received his mercy. And this is where the beauty of Peter's metaphor mixing becomes apparent. As stones, we are built into a spiritual house that will remain forever, never falling down into disarray, established not on the permanency of stone matter itself or of what we know about physics, but on the permanency of Christ. God is the master builder, the one who planned out this house from the very beginning. Christ's death and resurrection makes him the cornerstone, the foundation of the church. And the spirit connects us stones together into this spiritual house on top of Jesus. It is the work of the builder, not of us. And because it does not depend on us, we know that we will not topple off. We will not spill out into a meadow to lie forgotten amongst the wildflowers, reminders of what might have been. This spiritual house will last into eternity with us as integral stones on top of Jesus, the cornerstone. And yet, because we are living stones, we don't need to, be, to fear being hewn down into these identical, identical cookie-cutter squares that fit neatly together in some sort of assembly line fashion. When God breathes life into us and builds us into his people, he doesn't erase any of the uniqueness that he created us with. Our cultural and racial identities remain. Our personalities, temperaments, and preferences remain. Our gifts and talents remain. And these things don't only remain, but they are renewed by the life-giving mercy of God. And God, the master builder, takes each one of us in all of our uniqueness, with our rough edges that don't always seem to fit, and builds us into this spiritual house. But Peter's not quite done mixing metaphors yet. He isn't content to let us be simply a spiritual house of worship. Because we are alive, because we are more than passive, identical stones, we, are, as God's people, are not just a spiritual house, 
but also the royal priesthood inside the house. Now, the priesthood of all believers might seem like an odd thing to focus on in the Episcopal Church, where one spends multiple years in discernment, goes through dozens of interviews, writes more than a few essays, has to pass the bishop's muster, and then does three years in seminary, all to wear a collar, put on a stole, and be called priest. And yes, since I'm less than one year out, I'm still processing all of that. But actually, in the Episcopal Church, we believe that baptism is the first step in the ordination process. Baptism is the moment when you become part of God's own people, set aside from the world to be part of God's work in the world, to be a minister of God's grace, part of a royal priesthood. And so priesthood is something that every single one of us here is doing right now as God's own people built up into God's own spiritual house. And we see this royal priesthood most clearly in the Eucharist, the Eucharist that we are all about to celebrate together as one body. In the Eucharist, we remember the mighty acts of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We remember what God has done for us through Christ's death and resurrection, how he has forgiven our sins, how he gave us mercy when we had no mercy, how he made us into a people when we were not a people. And while I as the priest might be up front saying the words, you as the royal priesthood are essential to the prayer. I can't say it without you here. If I'm alone in a room, it's not considered a valid Eucharist. Together, as one, we thank God for his gifts to us. And then we come forward together to eat of his body and drink of his blood. And this isn't how things worked in the Old Testament. When the Israelites brought forward a sin offering to the temple, only the priests ate of it. But when we remember Christ's offering and his gift of his body and blood on the cross, we all eat of it together. Simon Oliver, a British priest and theologian, puts it this way. The church is a royal priesthood, so everyone partakes in the reciprocity of Christ's gift of himself. The people of God are a priestly people in receiving the gifts of Christ's once and for all sacrifice in the Eucharist. When you receive the Eucharist, you do so as part of God's royal priesthood. In this act, you remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross for your sins. You proclaim the marvelous works of God. You tell the world you have come out of darkness and into light. And you do all of this as a living stone, fitted into the spiritual house that has Christ as its cornerstone. Your place there is permanent, a living and vibrant testimony of what God has done in you and through you.
so as we pray the Eucharistic prayer, and as you come forward to the table, know that your stone will never topple off of this spiritual house. Know that this Eucharist makes visible to you the inner reality of your royal priesthood. Know that God is the one who has chosen you, given you mercy, and made you one of his own people. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of our parish, we would really appreciate it. You can make a one-time or recurring gift by going to calvarystgeorges.org give. Thank you for your support.